as we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Continuing in our series through the book of Acts and through the, the triumphs and the trials of the early church, we had just completed chapter 5 with a, a shocking incident. And now we are about to begin chapter 6. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. This is the very Word of the living God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Acts chapter 6. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray even now that you would prepare our minds and our hearts. We need the work of your Spirit in order to benefit from your Word. We need the work of your Spirit in order to apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would meet us in your Word by your Spirit. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue on in our series in Acts, and we have seen a great many challenges come to the way of the church. We've seen the church re- receive without. We've seen the church face challenges from within, dishonesty, deception. We've seen the church face up to its own fears. And this morning, there is yet another challenge that will be placed before the church. Perhaps you have wondered yourself why life and church life has to be so difficult. Why you just clear one hurdle and it seems that two more have been set up on the track. And over and over again, there are challenges to the church and to the believer. It's because the enemy of the church, Satan himself, desires to see the church fail. 
He desires that the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ be a colossal failure. And so he attacks it at every point. And we'll see this morning, he even attacks it at the point of success. Satan will try and use success to cause dissension and difficulty in the church. So what I would like us to see this morning are three things that are going on in this text. There's much more that's going on than simply, this is the place where you go to find the first deacons. We will see first that there is a problem facing the church. The church faces a problem. And then secondly, we will see the solution that they apply. And it is not the solution that perhaps we might first have thought of. And then finally, we will see the blessing that the Lord gives to the church in the midst of this difficulty and the solution that is provided. The problem, the solution, and the blessing. Let's start by looking at the problem. The problem begins from a series of challenging circumstances. Now, they may not be what we would consider immediately to be challenging, but upon second reflection, I think we will see them. Look at verse 1 with me. Our chapter begins, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. Luke reminds us that the church is growing. We don't know how long the gap is between chapter 5 and chapter 6. It could be a few weeks. It could be a few months. We're not sure. But one thing we know, because Luke goes out of his way to tell us, is that the church is growing. Luke keeps reminding us about this growth. If you call in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, he tells us that those who received the word were baptized, and and there were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. And again in verse 47, we saw that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In chapter 4 and verse 4, we saw that the number that was added to the church then was about 5,000. And just last chapter, chapter 5 and verse 14, we have an even bigger growth. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, both of men and of women. So this is a constant theme of this early section of Acts. So this brings a challenge with it. You may think and analogize to even what we have. Perhaps you have had occasion to serve in the nursery when there were 11, 12, 13 infants in it. Or 10 toddlers. Perhaps you will have the great blessing of teaching 20 kindergartners in VBS this week. And the room, I assure you, will seem a little bit small. You see, growth brings with it those kinds of challenges. What do we do? How are we efficient? How do we serve everyone? How is everyone brought into community? And these are the kinds of challenges that the early church faced. But it's not the only challenge that we can identify with. You see, at this time, another challenge the church had was a horrible economy. The economy in Palestine, and especially in Jerusalem, was in... We might call it super depression. You see, those who lived in Jerusalem, the Jews, were under the Roman authorities. And they were taxed so much so that they would be glad to pay all of the federal, state, and local taxes that we pay. Because you see, they were taxed not according to a formula, but according to however much the authorities could literally squeeze out of them. 
So there were many who were poor. There were many who had difficulty finding things to eat. And the church would try and support these people. But you see, because they were in Jerusalem, not only would they have their own people to support, but widows from outside of Jerusalem would come to Jerusalem seeking support. Because there would be a greater percentage of Jews in that area. There was the temple in that area. There was the priesthood in that area. And so Jews from the hinterlands, Jews from across the Greek world, would come back to Jerusalem if they were widowed. And they had no means of support. So here is this church in the midst of a bad economy having to do double duty with mercy ministry. It's obvious that there are insufficient funds to take care of everyone. We just saw last chapter, they were doing everything they could, selling property, selling goods, dividing things up. But the challenge to them is not just growth and not just the economy, but also opposition. Because you see, normally the temple would provide for widows. Normally, the temple tax would be used to provide for those who were in difficulties. But you can imagine those who run the temple are not exactly thrilled with this new group of Jesus lovers. They don't want them speaking in Jesus' name. They don't want them preaching in Jesus' name. And you can just imagine the temple authorities saying, well, we'll stick it to them. They won't listen to us. Provide for your own widows. Not going to get a penny from us. So they're facing opposition from the authorities who are supposed to be there to help. But there's an even greater opposition in place here. It's not just the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the temple guard. No. Satan is still at work trying to destroy the church. He's tried by a frontal assault. And now he's going to try with a bit more... is not anything that is overtly evil. No one is lying to the Holy Spirit. No one is mocking God. But yet Satan is using these circumstances to use a strategy that is as old as the hills. It's called divide and conquer. And that's what Satan is seeking to do. These challenging circumstances are all the more difficult because there are now also emerging divisions in the church. We see this here in the beginning of the chapter. There was a complaint by the Hellenists. who That complaint arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You see, we see there are two types of believers. There are Hellenists and there are Hebrews. This is the case in Judaism, but it was also the case in the early church. And basically what it means was this. There were two different cultures of Jews. There were the Jews who were born and reared and lived in Jerusalem and its environments. And they spoke a language called Aramaic. You may recall we said that part of Daniel was written in Aramaic. It's a form of Hebrew. And they were proud about the fact that they were steeped in many, many generations of the land. There are certain places in the country where you can live an awfully long time, but you'll never be more than an outsider. I know people that have lived in certain cities for 50 or 60 years, 
and it's as if they moved in last week. Because there are others who can go back to their great-great-great-grandparents living in the same town, sometimes in the same house. And you see, the Hellenists would be the outsiders here to the Hebrews. The Hebrews would be the ones who grew up generation after generation speaking Aramaic. The Hellenists would be those from Turkey, what is now modern Turkey, or in other portions, Syria perhaps, or Egypt, and their language would be Greek. They probably wouldn't know much Aramaic at all. So you can imagine what that kind of a worship service would be like. Have you ever attended a worship service in Spanish where you don't know any Spanish? Or in English where you don't know any English? I've attended one in Russia where I didn't know any Russian. It's very hard to get along. It's very hard to follow what is going on. And you can imagine as these two parties try and live together, work together, and worship together, their cultural differences and their language differences make this very different and very difficult. But the differences are more than about language and geography because the Hellenists also had a little bit of a different view of worship and of the Word of God. They were more open to changes more open to bringing in new ideas. And you know how well that goes over in the church. And so there are potential divisions and difficulties faced in the midst of this church as it explodes. And as more and more Hellenists crowd into the church because of the success of the gospel. Do you see this? The gospel is succeeding. Good things are happening. More people are coming to know Jesus. And it's causing problems. So not just in the 21st century in Houston, but in the 1st century in Palestine as well. We also see, though, that in the midst of this, that mercy ministry was being done. It is clear that the widows were being served. There was a daily distribution. Property was being sold, and the apostles were trying to take care of as many as they could. And we see in the midst of this that the complaint was not primarily about food. Have you ever had that in your family? Someone raises an issue or a complaint and you know it is not really what it's about. There's something underneath. You've got to dig down a little bit. Perhaps you have had a conversation with your wife or your husband in which you say, you know, I really don't understand why we need to do this at this time. And what you're really saying is, why don't you listen to me and take my advice? Why don't you pay me more respect? You see, there are often issues that are underneath surface issues. And so when the Hellenists complain, you notice that the complaint is very specific. It is a complaint about and against the Hebrews. It's not just that they don't have enough food. It's that, why don't we have what they have? Why are they better than we are? Why can't we get the same amount of respect? Why are we second-class Christians? And you see, what is happening here is a personal kind of animosity is developing. Satan is using these divisions of language and geography and circumstance, and he is whispering in the ears of Christians. You know... You really deserve more food. You have six children. She's only got five. Why do you think she gets more food than you? 
you know they'll never respect you the way they should. It's because of your language. And then back to the Hebrews. Look at those complainers. All they can do is complain, complain. Ignore them. Don't give them anything good. You know what? You should maybe even make a little bit of fun of them. Teach them a lesson. This is how Satan works. Mocking, cajoling, whispering, seeking to do great damage in the church. And you see, what happens here is the complaint divides these two parties. And we might ask ourselves, is what's going on here a perception or is it reality? Is there really a denial of daily food? Or is it just a perception that one side is being treated differently, lesser than the other? I think the answer is yes. Because you see, so often in our lives, in our families, and in our churches, perception is reality. We must in the church go out of our way to serve others, to make others welcome, to make them a part of our circle. You see, when we physically move people off, or when we do not speak to some, or when we treat others as if, well, they're just around, but not important to us, then Satan has an avenue. He has a crack in the door. He has the ability to get to us, even through a cup of spilled water. You see, the church is a place where unity is important because of the mission of Jesus Christ. And if we are to carry out that mission, we must never allow division to come in. We must not allow Satan any room at all to maneuver. The apostles understood this. They saw the problem. They were aware of it. So what then do they do? They have to come up with a solution. They can't let this problem get worse and worse and fester. So what happens? Let's look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, the first thing that the apostles do is they begin to set priorities. It's something we all do. If you ever take on a very big task, you set your priorities. You figure out the main things first. If you were to undertake, say, for example, the task of a wedding, you don't start with what color the napkins will be. You start with the dress. You start with the church. You start with the main things, and then you work your way down. You set priorities. If you ever want to get to those secondary things, you must start with the major things. When you build a home, you don't worry about what wallpaper will be in the bathroom. You start with, do I want a one-story or two? How many bedrooms? Etc. Okay. You set your priorities, and that's what the apostles then begin to do. So what do they not do here? There are several things they could do to make their lives easier. But it wouldn't set priorities. The first thing they could do is shun the complainers. Perhaps you've seen this in a church. They're complaining. Let's ignore them. 
Let's not invite them to Bible study because all they're going to do is complain. Let's not invite them when we have heart and home because then we're going to have to listen over and over again about the daily distribution. Enough already with the daily distribution. We ignore them. We shun them. There's another thing that they could do, and this happens as well in churches. They could have shut them down. Listen, you're getting what you're getting for free. Stop complaining. We don't want to hear it anymore. You're causing division in the church. You should feel guilty about that. Cut it out already. This happens in churches as well. There's a third thing they could have done. They could have forced them out of the church. You know, go find your own place to worship where people are like you. Where people Go make a Greek church, would you? We don't need this here. And then there's the reverse of that, which is the Hellenists look around at the grand facade of First Apostolic Church of Jerusalem and they say, let's form Second Apostolic Church of Jerusalem. There, everything will be in Greek and we'll get everything we need and we won't have to listen to these Hebrews anymore. You see, that's what the apostles could have done. And too often that is what is done in the church. So we can learn a lesson here from the apostles as to how to handle difficulties, divisions, conflict in the church. And you see, this problem as it raises its head is very interesting because it is a practical problem. It is not a theological problem. They are not debating about issues of the Trinity or the person and work of Jesus Christ, or even theology of worship. No, they're arguing about something that is front and center. And that never happens in the church, does it? How many of us have heard stories about churches dividing not over the preaching of a minister, not over Sunday school curriculum, but the color of the carpet, or the size of the rooms, or the time of the service? You see, there's an old adage that says that when Satan fell from heaven, he landed in the choir loft. Because there's so many practical things that need to happen in the choir. And you see, it's important in our singing, in our building, in our rooms, in all of our ministry to have unity first. That will make all of those things successful. Because you see, it's these practical things that often divide. The apostles, we need to remember, were already doing mercy ministry. So it's not as if the Hellenists could come up and say, you're falling down on the job. Look back with me at Acts chapter 4 and verse 35. Actually, beginning in verse 34, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And what did they do with it? They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see, the apostles were doing mercy ministry. So this brings up yet another problem in the church. Do you see it? The Hellenists are complaining that they are not being properly served in the distribution. And whose fault is that? The apostles. You know, you're supposed to be leading this church. Why can't you lead the church the way a church is supposed to be led? Why can't you be the kind of leaders? Weren't you trained by Jesus? Didn't he show you how to do this? And how do the apostles respond? 
many of us would be tempted to respond with, listen, we're doing the best we can. Get off our backs. They're hauling us off to jail every other day. Cut it out. Defensive. Trying to stand on their own rights. We're doing all kinds of things. We're preaching. We're praying. We're serving. It's too much for us. And that's the reality. But they don't respond in anger. They don't respond in sarcasm. They don't respond by turning up the temperature in the church. They respond in a gracious way. Do you see how gracious they are? They don't begin by defending themselves. They don't begin by standing on their own rights. They realize that this task is too big for them. They're not too proud to admit it. Oftentimes, we are tempted to do that, aren't we? Can I help you with that? Oh, no, 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 I've got it. Let me lend a hand. Oh, no, no, I can take care of it. And if I don't, it won't be done right. But you see, the apostles say, this is too much for us. And they also realize the relative importance. They are saying to themselves, you know, we've got all this work with the distribution, and we've got all this work with prayer and the word. We've got to find someone else to do this distribution because we're going to start falling down on the job with prayer and the word. We're already having difficulties with the distribution. Soon enough, we're going to neglect prayer. We're going to preach badly. We're going to affect people's lives. We've got to get this under control now. And so they act right then. They understand that the main task of a church is the ministry of the word. Mercy ministry is important, but the main purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is to minister the word, to minister the word to those who do not know Jesus Christ, that they might come to know him and receive forgiveness of sins. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, this text calls to you. Men who were walking with Jesus 2,000 years ago understood that it was so important to bring you the word that they were willing to hand off the care of elderly widows to stay with the ministry of the word. You see, they say here, it is not right... And that Greek word means it is not correct, it is not proper, but it also means it is not desirable. It's not desirable for us, it's not desirable for you that we give up this ministry of the word. They say we can't leave off from it, we can't give it up, we can't abandon it. The word is very strong. We can't abandon the word of God simply to wait tables. As important as that is, the word is central. There's something else that I need you to see here from this text. There should be a word in italics here. And the word in italics is preaching. Because you see, the Greek actually says, not the preaching of the word, but the word of God. Which encompasses preaching, but is so much more. It is an entire ministry of the word. The church is to be a place that is word-steeped, where the word is found in everything we do, in our preaching, in our Sunday school, in our VBS, in our fellowship. The word is central to everything that we do. That's what the apostles are saying. So how then do they solve this problem? They don't take any of the typical church actions. They don't run people out of town. 
They don't make them feel guilty. What do they do? They do something that is very curious and very encouraging. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should leave off the word of God. How do they solve this problem? Do they go out and get some experts? Do they bring in people to set up a grand plan? Do they set up a committee? No. Do they try and do everything themselves? Do they huddle back in a corner and come up with a solution and roll it out to the congregation? No. And it's not just because papyri is more expensive than photocopy paper. No, the reason that they do not do these things is they are committed to bringing the whole church together. It's not a coincidence that when the problem is division and dissension, the apostle's solution is, let's get everybody together. Let's hear from everyone. Let's come up with a solution that everyone is on board with. And so they have the first recorded congregational meeting in the New Testament. We don't know who spoke. Perhaps it was John the Apostle of Love who stood up and talked about their commitment to one another and love. Perhaps it was James who stood up and gave practical wisdom. Perhaps it was some of the others who had witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know, but we do know that when they finished their discussion, there was not a divisive vote and grumbling and anger and difficulty. When they finished, all were in agreement. What they said, verse 5, pleased the whole gathering. You see, they came up with a solution that everyone thought made sense, would resolve all issues, and would bring everyone together. They went another step to bringing people together. They went a step that I'm thankful for because it's a part of our church government. They said to the people, you choose seven. They didn't say, you'll get these seven guys. They said, you choose seven. It's your congregation. You need to think about it. You need to pray about it. And you choose seven from amongst your midst. But they didn't leave it at that. They said, in order to help you make a wise decision, we're going to give you some biblical guidelines. These seven men need to be of good reputation. The word there that is actually used is a form of the word martyr. They are to have such a reputation that they will testify to the outside world about the church. They are to command confidence in the work that has been given to them because everyone knows they are above board. You know how difficult it is to get a job done when people think you're being dishonest? When people think you don't know what you're doing? The apostles don't want to have that. So they give a parameter. It's not your best friend who gets to become one of the seven. It's not the one who's the most social. It's not the one who has the best standing. No, he needs to be a man of good reputation. But more than that, he needs to also be a man of wisdom. Wisdom is the use of knowledge in the pursuit of godliness. He needs to be a man who understands problems and can come up with godly solutions. 
He doesn't just have to command confidence in the work. He has to command competence in the work. He has to be able to deal with delicate situations, like dealing with perhaps a group of widows. You want to make sure he says the right things, that he has the right sensitivities, that he understands what they're going through. They have to have good reputation. They have to be men of wisdom. But it doesn't stop there. It actually starts someplace else. It starts in them being full of the Spirit. They must be full of the Spirit of God. It must be evident to all that they are children of God and that they are spiritual men. They are given to the task not because of what they can get out of it, not because they know they can do it, but because they desire in their heart of hearts to be servants of God. They need to be men who are marked by prayer, attendance on the word, desire to see the church and the kingdom expand. They are to be men of the spirit. And you've heard me say it several times, but I will say one other thing. They need to be men. Why? Because God says so. The word that is used here specifically is the word that is used for a male. There is a word, men, that is used kind of like human beings. That word in Greek is the word we get anthropology from. That's not this word. This word is specifically referring to male members of the human being species. There's another word that means women. And so if we are to be followers of the Bible, if we are to be given to prayer in the word, we must do what the word tells us. Regardless of what our culture says, regardless of what our sensitivities The Bible doesn't say choose men because they're smarter. The Bible doesn't even say choose men because they're more spiritual. The Bible says choose men because God says choose men. And so we must be ready and willing to choose men and at the same time acknowledging that women are just as spiritual, that women are capable, that women have areas of service in the church and they should be lifted up. Because this is not a matter of nature. This is a matter of commandment from God. There's one final interesting thing about these men who are chosen. You may notice it if you know a little bit about language. Their names are Stephen, which means crown. Philip, lover of horses. Procurus, the leader of the Greek chorus. Nicanor, conqueror, Parmenas, Nicolaus, every single one of these names is Greek. There's no Jacob. There's no Gideon. There's no Isaiah. There's no Ezekiel. Although presumably they're in the church. But do you see what's happening here? What the apostles have done is they have brought the church together and they have brought the church together such that everyone acknowledges that there's a problem and we need to fix it. And in order to make sure everyone is on board, the Hebrews defer and they say, let's choose Greeks. The Hellenists have had these complaints. Let's make sure they are served. Let's pick some Greek servants. That's another thing that should mark the church. Deference to each other. Do you see the grace in that? Do you see the Jesus modeled in that? They pick seven men, spiritual men, 
And this allows the apostles to stay dedicated and focused to the task that is at hand. And what they will do in verse 4 is they will devote themselves. They will persevere in the word. There is no hesitation at all. Do you see here? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They are certain about it. And there's an interesting thing here. Do you see the word ministry of the word? Do you know what that word is? Diaconate. The word for deacon is minister. The word for ministry is diakonos or diaconate or the work of the diaconate. And you see, it's just a different type of ministry. But it is a ministry of the word. It is a ministry that is just as real and tangible as handing someone water or a sandwich or a bandage. You see, the apostles are committed to the real and tangible ministry of the word because they see it as the foundation for everything that is being done, including mercy ministry. It's why it is such a shame when so many churches begin, middle, and end with mercy ministry. And they don't place an emphasis on the ministry of the word. And it's also a shame why some churches have ministry of the word and it doesn't lead them to action. Ministry of mercy. You see, the New Testament church was a church committed to both of these things. So should we. Well, we have seen then the problem and we have seen the solution. Very briefly, let's look at what the outcome of this is. What is the blessing that God brings to them? Look with me at verse 7. This is after the seven have been chosen, after they have been ordained, after they have done the work. We see, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Do you see what's going on there? I think it's very important to take verse 7 with the first six. Because you see, what God gives to them in the midst of this is victory. Very real victory. Satan's schemes are overcome. Satan has tried to use this division. He's tried to get in. He's tried to destroy this church from the side or from the back because he knows he can't do it from the front. And God gives them the grace and blessing of seeing Satan defeated. Seeing Satan defeated by the simple, foolish means of the word of God and prayer. As the church comes together, Satan is crushed in this instance because God desires it to be so. And because God has given to his church the word and prayer. This victory sees the word of God increase. You see, we started with a problem about food. And Luke tells us not only was the food situation fixed, the word of God went forth with more power. Now, this should give you encouragement and hope. It is a fabulous thing that the church experienced division and complaining. Because God takes division and complaining and turns it to glory. That's the power of the gospel. And so as we face our challenges, we must understand that we will gain victory not by scheming, not by planning, not by organizing, but by following the word of the Lord. 
And by seeing the gospel take root, not just in those people out there, but in us here. And Satan will be overcome. And then we will see the kingdom grow right before our eyes. Do you see this in verse 7? Not only does the word increase, but the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Luke is starting to run out of adjectives. He's talking about hundreds. Then he talks about thousands. Then he talks about more than ever it grows. And now he says it's not just growing, it's multiplying. And it's multiplying greatly beyond anything we could hope or imagine. The kingdom is going forward because the people of God are obedient to the word of God and are ministering to each other. That's how kingdom growth happens. And we should expect it to happen. Because God blesses his word and God blesses his people. And if we are faithful to God's word, he desires to see his word proclaimed, his name lifted up, Jesus' work explained and preached to the nations. That is why kingdom growth happens. Not for our sake, but for God's. And you see, God even then, almost with a smile on his face, you can imagine. It's not just that a great many more are added to the church. He gets very specific. He says a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that God is using this division and the ensuing unity to reach people that might be considered unreachable. These are the folks who have a vested interest in the temple. These are the folks who say, yeah, drag them off to jail when the temple guard is taking Peter and John away. God is reaching even those who would be considered hard-hearted because the people of God are together. And he gives them one last practical benefit. Do you remember how I told you that the widows were normally provided for in Judaism? It was the temple tax. And you remember that I said this was difficult for the church because they had bad relations with the temple and they couldn't get their widows supplied from the temple so they had to do it all on their own? Well, what do you think happens when a great many of the priests of the temple become a part of the church? That problem goes away. You see, God is not just concerned with the big things of our lives. He's also concerned with the little things. And God solves this problem. He makes the apostles and the church work through it because he wants to see the ensuing unity. He wants to see the kingdom grow. He wants to see them focused on kingdom mission. But at the end of the day, he says, okay, well, I'll take care of all of this for you anyway. What a gracious God we serve. Looks out for us in every aspect of our lives. Well, I hope what we have seen this morning from this text is more than a blueprint for how we should hold the elections of deacons. It's more than just the qualifications of men who should be deacons. It's much more. It's about how the church goes about its work and its mission and its ministry. Not just in the nuts and the bolts, but in the attitude. And it is my desire for Christ's church that we would continue on the path of unity, 
that we would serve one another, that we would minister to one another, that Jesus might get the glory, that His name might be proclaimed, and that we might see His kingdom expand. Let's pray.